Welcome to Success the Last, a podcast that honestly explores the complicated topic of success. I'm your host, Jared Siegel. I'm a partner at DeLap and leader of our wealth advisory practice. During each episode, we're going to talk to a business owner, entrepreneur, real estate investor, or industry thought leader about their own experiences, insights, and observations as it pertains to life, business, finances, and ultimately fulfillment. Candidly, it can be lonely at the top. Our desire is to use this podcast to connect you with the ideas and resources so you can be better equipped to make more predictable, profitable, and rewarding decisions as you juggle the competing priorities of life, business, and money. Keep in mind, this is a podcast. It's not meant to be a replacement for your CPA or financial advisor, so be sure to check with the appropriate professionals before implementing any of the ideas. Welcome back. Over the past couple of years, we've interviewed some incredible professionals. We've talked to business owners, neuroscientists, professional athletes, and PhDs. We've covered a variety of topics ranging from creating wealth versus preserving wealth, organizational culture, what's the difference between qualitative and quantitative capital. We've even done some Q&A episodes. This week, I wanted to try a new format, blunt, unapologetic, truth-telling that might border on a rant. Frankly, I'm heartbroken over watching good people chase a mirage. It's a potentially dangerous mirage that wastes both time and energy and has the potential to ruin wealth. To set the stage, let's go way back in time to 1799. It was December 14th, 1799, when three doctors were summoned to Mount Vernon to attend to a critically ill 67-year-old man who happened to be known as the father of our country. What did the final hours of George Washington actually look like? At 7.30 a.m., Dr. Rollins removed 12 to 14 ounces of Washington's blood. Following that procedure, a different doctor, Dr. Lear, gave Washington a tonic. The tonic was molasses, butter, and vinegar. Following that procedure, there was another bloodletting at 9.30 a.m., roughly 18 ounces, followed by another similar withdrawal at 11 a.m. At noon, Washington hadn't yet received enough treatment, so an enema was administered. After the enema, Washington was asked to gargle sage tea that had been laced with vinegar. Shortly after finishing the gargling session, doctors ordered another letting. This time, 32 ounces of blood was removed from George Washington. Next, doctors suggested a dose of mercuric chloride, guaranteed to make the former president vomit with vengeance, which was ultimately followed by yet another bloodletting. What I think is pretty notable here is prior to George Washington actually passing away, he's cited as making the point of thanking each of the three doctors that came out to help him for the treatments. So here's the point of the story. George Washington was and is an American icon. You would have expected him to have received the absolute best medical care possible. Yet, the very best medicine had to offer was bleeding him. Well over 90 ounces of blood. I'm not a doctor, so I did a quick little bit of research. Losing 2,000 milliliters of blood can be fatal. 90 ounces of blood is 2,662 milliliters. What was once defined as the best medical thinking back in 1799 looks to me today to resemble gross negligence bordering on manslaughter. It was the absence of doubt and scientific rigor that made medicine unscientific. It's what allowed harmful treatments to persist unchallenged. It's a little ironic that scientists today know vastly more than their colleagues centuries ago and possess more data crunching power, but yet they're less confident in the prospects of perfect predictability. It really wasn't that long ago that medicine was a lot more like sorcery, hearsay, and anecdotes. Who knows if the virus actually killed George Washington 
or his three physicians. When medicine finally decided to embrace empirical data and peer-reviewed studies, the outcomes of medicine skyrocketed. The predictability improved. I can't wait for the day when this truth isn't so obfuscated for the benefit of Wall Street, when the same scientific rigor applied to medicine informs the financial decisions of investors. I've learned something as a wealth advisor serving successful business owners and real estate developers. The most persuasive evidence is whatever you want to be true or have experienced personally. What you want to be true invites in confirmation bias. It's easy to seek out information that only confirms pre-existing beliefs. The incentives for being right when investing are so big that it's hard to think clearly about the decision without getting distracted by the potential rewards. Predict the right investments or the right economic directions and you get to retire early on the beach. High-stake investment decisions cause fuzzy thinking because they push us to desperately want something to be true, even if it's not. To some extent, we covered this in an earlier podcast episode titled 99.9% Driven by This Invisible Information. In the episode, we discussed neuroeconomics in that we were 99.9% unaware of the dopamine releases within our body, yet we are 99.9% driven by the information it conveys to the other parts of our brain. This makes our investment thinking less rational than most of us are ready or willing to admit. In looking at brain scans, scientists have said that there's a striking similarity between the brains of a gambler and the brains of a cocaine addict or morphine user. What you personally have experienced is also influential. As author Morgan Housel puts it, he says, familiarity is a doppelganger for accuracy in our brain. The two can be hard to tell apart. Stuff you've experienced personally is way more realistic than what we've merely read about. And two equally smart investors with the same data can come to opposite conclusions, swayed only by the differences of their own unique life experiences. I recently turned on the TV to hear two different so-called investment professionals that professed an ability to read the metaphorical economic tea leaves. I was so repulsed by the theater of it all. These were two professionals there to represent their respective companies, almost more as actors than real economic professionals, to confidently state what they alone could see and what no one else could. Don't get me wrong. It was entertaining. They're clearly smart. Some of the information was actually presented in a really thought-provoking way. But what they were sharing was at the very best a mere shot-in-the-dark guess. That's financial theater. It's entertainment. But it certainly isn't anything worth responding to when it comes to our portfolios. Network television is paid for our attention, not for its accuracy. They sell ads, not the truth. Don't get me wrong. I love entertainment when it's called entertainment. However, financial theater financially hurts people. They fill the air with little more than financial pornography to emotionally provoke and distract investors and ultimately cause them to stumble. Wouldn't it be a breath of fresh air if we looked at a headline, almost certainly written by a journalist with little to no financial training, that stated, the market rose today for one of a hundred different reasons, or a mixture of them, so no one really knows exactly. At least then they're being honest. There's a critical difference between possibility and probability. If you get those two crossed up, you'll experience needless pain, stress, and misdirect your precious time, energy, and resources to answering the wrong questions. Just because something's possible doesn't mean that it's highly probable. It's possible for an economic forecast to be correct, but how probable is it?
Ivy League professor Philip Tetlock has spent 40 years as a meticulous social scientist collecting millions of predictions from tens of thousands of people in order to figure out how good humans really are at foreseeing the future. Tetlock has concluded that human beings who spend their lives studying the state of the world are poorer forecasters than dart-throwing monkeys. People who make predictions of their business The people who appear as experts on TV, get quoted in the newspapers, advise governments and businesses, and even participate in the punditry roundtables are no better than the rest of us. The accuracy of an expert's prediction actually has an inverse relationship to his or her self-confidence, renown, and depth of knowledge. Let me say that again. The expert's predictions have an inverse relationship to their fame and depth of knowledge. This ultimately is what an Ivy League professor had concluded after 40 years of studying the subject. A baseball player has a batting average. A quarterback has a completion percentage. I think it's worth noting that forecasters aren't even held accountable for their predictions. Notice how predictions are often vague and lack a specific timeline. If they guess and they're wrong, the world forgets that the guess ever occurred. If they happen to guess right, they forever remind you that they're the guy that predicted the crisis. If you're lucky, they might even make a movie about you. What is almost certainly luck is being disguised as skill. Warren Buffett provided his take on forecasts back in his 1992 chairman's letter to investors when he said, we've long felt that the only value of a forecast is to make a fortune teller look good. As I see it, the goal of forecasting is not to see what's coming. It's to advance the interest of a forecaster or the forecaster's tribe. There's simply too much storytelling. Often it's people with agendas trying to make a narrative become self-fulfilling. The very first computer was invented way back in 1943. Computers have forever changed civilization. A boy born in 1939 would eventually end up at the University of Chicago around the time when the school received its first computer. It took nearly three years of data entry, but PhD students at the country's top economic university input daily pricing information for all stocks going back to the early 1920s. The school was the University of Chicago. It was at that time that future Nobel laureate Gene Fama used this groundbreaking technology to empirically discover the informational efficiency of markets. He was able to quantitatively prove that available information was accurately reflected in asset prices. His theorem is referred to today as the efficient markets thesis. If markets are informationally efficient, Fundamental analysis performed by an investment firm has no power to select stocks, and professionally active managers should do no better at picking stock portfolios than monkeys throwing darts. This is a remarkable proposition. In any other field of human endeavor, seasoned professionals systematically outperform amateurs, but other fields are not so ruthlessly competitive as a financial market. This isn't just my opinion. It's the empirical evidence of a Nobel laureate that systematically and objectively examined 90-plus years of raw economic data. I think it's noteworthy that standard procedures in accounting, regulation, and law now routinely presume that asset prices are the very best measure of value. It's only active stock pickers, people attempting to predict economic futures, that are in the minority when they reject the consensus price of a market, believing that they're mispriced. For nearly a half century, Gene Vama's efficient market framework has provided the organizing principles for empirical financial economics and continues to do so today. It's held up 
to the rigorous analysis of PhDs and economists for five decades, there's now a new round of studies which is examining again the abilities of a fund manager, focusing on different ways of sorting the lucky from the skillful. Earlier, we discussed that the most persuasive evidence is what you want to be true and what you've personally experienced. Don't you want it to be possible to accurately predict the next economic crisis so you could avoid it? How alluring is that? If you could simply read enough, study enough, you might be able to discover the next visionary who can help you avoid the sting of the next recession. Is that possible? Yes. Is it probable? Well, let's turn to the data. The International Monetary Fund looked at 63 different countries between the years 1992 and 2014. That is 1,306 country year observations. During that time frame, there were 153 recessions. That means that about 12% of the time, these countries were in a recession. However, only five of the 153 recessions were predicted by economists. That's only 3%. That means that 97% of the recessions weren't predicted by economists. How many false signals were given to the market by these economists? Why then do I see so many economic forecasts in the headlines? Well, the simple answer is scary headlines get clicks. Clicks drive revenue. What if economists are more like rearview mirrors, helping us make sense of economic data once it's behind us? Right about now, your cognitive dissonance might be hitting on all cylinders. Cognitive dissonance is merely the discomfort that results from holding beliefs and values that are in conflict with the facts. This inconsistency between what people believe and how they behave motivates people to engage in actions that will help minimize these feelings of discomfort. People attempt to relieve this tension in different ways, such as rejecting the information, explaining it away, or flat out avoiding new information. So let me try to anticipate that little voice in your head that's disagreeing with me. But what about fill in the blank? A common answer is, what about Warren Buffett? That's a great answer. Let's look at some of the more recent data. From 2011 through 2021, Berkshire Hathaway has averaged 12.5%. However, the benchmark, the S&P 500, is up over 14.8% during that time frame. Over the past five years, Berkshire has delivered 14%, while the benchmark has delivered 17%. Over the past three years, Berkshire has delivered 11.58%, while the benchmark has delivered 18%. So if Warren Buffett one of the world's most successful investors can't beat the market over the past three, five, and 10 years. Do you think you can? Do you think you could find somebody that could? I think what Warren Buffett really exemplifies is the power of compound interest. Over $75 billion of his net worth has come since he turned 65. Even average returns are incredibly powerful once you've hit a critical mass. It allows you to harness the eighth wonder of the world, compound interest. Warren Buffett once said that he's owned 400 to 500 stocks during his life, and most of his money has actually come from just 10 of them. Charlie Munger followed up, if you remove just a few of Berkshire Hathaway's top investments, its long-term track record looks very average. Let's try another one. But what about Peter Lynch? He's a famous money manager that outperformed the benchmark for years. I'll just find a top manager like Peter Lynch and give him my money and outperform the market. Peter Lynch grew the Fidelity Magellan Fund into the largest mutual fund ever. Knowing that one day he'd retire, he started a multi-year training and recruiting mission for his successor. However, manager after manager has failed. In early 2000, the fund stood at over $106 billion. 
At the time of this recording, over 21 years later, the cumulative value of the fund is only $29 billion, nearly 73% less 21 years later. If Peter Lynch, knowing everything he knew, training his protégés for years, couldn't find the next Peter Lynch, are you confident that you will be able to find the next Peter Lynch? What about Michael Burry, that really smart hedge fund manager from the movie The Big Short? The guy that was able to predict the housing crisis and make millions, billions of dollars for his investors? Well, back in 2017, Burry predicted an imminent stock crash. He warned that we could expect a global financial meltdown equivalent to World War III. I'll link to his exact words in the show notes. He followed that inaccurate prediction up with another one in September of 2019, where he said index funds are the next market bubble and compared them to subprime collateralized debt obligations or CDOs. That prediction hasn't panned out, and yet the S&P 500 is up over 50% at the time of this recording relative to that prediction. Remember the earlier statement, the goal of forecasting is not to see what's coming, it's to advance the interest of the forecaster, the forecaster's tribe? What are the chances that Burry had already purchased put options of some sort, maybe put a short in play before sitting down with the interviewer? Why would Burry give away his trading insights for free when he's likely charging his clients the usual hedge fund fees of 2% and 20% of profits? You get the point. I could keep going on showcasing the forecast airballs of some incredible financial minds. I merely wanted to highlight that everyone focuses on the guesses that actually worked out and completely ignores the many, many misses that occur. I also wanted to point out that being a vocal, confident critic or economic contrarian often appears to be a more intelligent perspective of what's going on in the economy. We want it to be true. We want there to be a way to enjoy the upside of capitalism while avoiding the recessions and corrections that come with it. The data concludes that you can capture more value through planning than you can through economic predictions. With most forecasts, people are simply trying to avoid the downside. That's normal. It's called loss aversion. Loss aversion is the tendency to avoid losses over achieving equivalent gains. Broadly speaking, people feel pain from losses much more acutely than they feel pleasure from gains of the same amount. If forecasts don't work, how do you reduce the downside? Diversification as in owning different asset classes that move up and down independent of one another, is a proven way to manage risk effectively. Owning a lot of one asset class in one jurisdiction is a great way to create wealth, but it's not the type of diversification proven to preserve wealth. If I back up to why I wanted to share this message in the first place, it was to prevent unnecessary pain. Watching economic predictions poison the financial lives of others is a personal trigger. I met people that were 100% sure that Trump was going to tank the country, so they moved their money to cash back in November 2016, and they never found a way back into the market. They've been waiting for that big crash and have missed out on 100% growth in the S&P as it's moved from 2100 to over 4400 today. I watched the doomsday headlines calling for a financial apocalypse related to COVID. The fear-mongering was at a whole new level. People sold out of the market back in March and April of 2020 and have missed out on some spectacular investment returns since then. We'll wrap this up with an observation from Morgan Housel. People with different time horizons and different goals who want different things out of the same asset create reasonable differences in opinions that can be misinterpreted as disagreements. Different timelines and different objectives should influence how you think about your wealth. Different time horizons and goals should influence how you respond to the news. Focusing your attention on information that aligns with your goals is critical, but is way harder than it sounds. 
People mistakenly think that investing is about finance when realistically, it's more about how people behave with money. If we back up to where we started the episode, to George Washington's final day and the treatments that he received, it was the absence of doubt and scientific rigor that made it unscientific. When it comes to your money, you should question the value of an economic prediction. They simply do not hold up to scientific rigor. I believe that economic predictions are like Washington's doctors, bleeding the patient rather than healing them. The only certainty promised by the future is uncertainty. Thanks for listening.